Well, good morning. So glad to be with you here this morning. Uh, there is a bike company by the name of Van Moof. So this is a more upper-end bicycle company. And in 2015, they started shipping their bikes to the United States. And uh, they quickly found out, for whatever reason, the people that handled the shipping stuff, logistics in the United States, for whatever reason, weren't as good as their home, co home continent of Europe. And so they found that they started to receive a lot of complaints from their customers in the United States when they shipped their bikes, now that there was damage to the handlebars, to the tires, to the bike frame, whatever. And so they're trying to figure out what to do to fix this problem. And they found that their bikes actually fit in the same size box as a large fat, flat screen TV. So they came up with this idea of instead of putting, you know, bike packaging on their large bike, uh, you know, boxes when they shipped them, they put uh, large TVs on them and an image of a bicycle so that the people handling the boxes would think it was a large screen TV. So here's a picture of what they look like. <clears throat> something like that, and that's a real picture. And uh, they found that very soon after they started changing from normal bike bo uh, boxes to flat screen TVs, that their damage and complaints reduced by 70 to 80%. All because the people who were dealing with boxes all day, even though there is a bike on that picture, think that it's a flat screen TV because that is what they saw. And so they, uh, undoubtedly, the people that were handling these, these packages, if they were to open up one of these bikes or one of these boxes, they would be surprised by what they saw. They would not expect to see a bike in there. They would expect to see a TV. They would have completely missed it. And today, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, we are going to see what can so easily happen when we assume Jesus is going to be one way that we can miss who he actually is. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me to Mark chapter 11 this morning. We've been in Mark for a while. We've taken a break. Now we're jumping back into it, and we will be in Mark until we finish. Uh, today marks the beginning of what is known as Passion Week, Jesus' final week as he heads towards the cross, towards his crucifixion. And so the Gospel of Mark is all about Jesus, who he is, and his story. And so if you want to turn there, if you don't have a Bible, you can turn in one of those black ones. Or if you have your own, you can join us in Mark chapter 11. And so the question we're looking at this morning as we begin our time back in Mark is this, how can I know who Jesus is when others miss it? That's the question before us as we read this passage this morning. How can you and I know who Jesus is when other people can miss it and when you can I can also miss it? What is Mark trying to show us? And that's what we'll read and so here's what, it here's what it says, beginning Jesus' last week leading up his crucifixion, him and his disciples are headed towards Jerusalem. Here's what it says, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, it says, when they, this is Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now to get us on the same page, if you're not familiar with uh, a Jewish and Israelite geography, which you probably are not. Bethany and Bethpage are villages right outside of Jerusalem. Uh, Bethany, what we'll see uh, through Jesus' last week, is where Jesus and his disciples would spend their evenings as they would spend the day in Jerusalem. It was about a two, mile, uh, two miles outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. Now, what's, uh, what's worth pointing out to in this verse is that not only does Mark tell us the towns that they're in, but he also gives a place name. So he says here that Mount, he also mentions how they were near the Mount of Olives. Now this is significant because Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, he talks about villages and cities, but he very rarely gives place names. Like he doesn't talk about names of places within those cities that would have been well known. He simply talk, refers to them by the towns and the villages. 
But here, he gives a place name. Now, the question is, why? Well, as we're going to see what Mark is trying to show us in this passage today, what so many of the people missed, is that Jesus is the Messiah. And in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives was associated with the coming Messiah and that was some place that he would come out of when he came back to the world. You can read about this, for example, in the book of Ezekiel or in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. And so Mark here is kind of giving this to let the readers, those of us who are reading or listening to Mark being taught, the association of the messianic significance of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. That this Messiah from the Mount of Olives that they would have read about is here. And so they get to Bethany. He sends out two of his disciples. And this is what he tells them to do. Verse 2, it says this. He says, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went, found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They answered them, Just as Jesus had said. So they let them go. So he sends two of his disciples into the village. Mark doesn't tell us which two that they are, but two of them go, and he tells them to untie a colt. Now, in the Greek word, it's the Greek word polos, which means colt or donkey, and it tells them, go get this colt. If they ask you why you're doing it, tell them the Lord told them that they could get it, and he'll bring it back as soon as he is done. Now, again, what's worth us sitting, uh, understanding here is the Lord was a very common cultural term back in that day. It could mean sir, it could mean master, it could just mean a sign of respect, or it could also be a name of the divine, like the God himself, the Lord. Now, the question is, in this situation, uh, what is, who is Jesus referring to himself as? Just a person of high honor, a person who is leading the disciples, or is he calling himself God here? Now, it seems to us, if you notice in your text, the Lord is capitalized, which means that Jesus is telling his disciples to tell the man that not just any other old person is asking for this, but God himself. Now, would the disciples have known that's what he meant? Or would the man, when he heard the disciples say the Lord is asking for this cult, would they have understood that he's talking about God and not just a master or some, somebody who's requesting a favor from you? Uh, Mark doesn't tell us. But as readers, we are supposed to see that this is not just someone who's asking for something. This is the Lord himself who is asking for the cult. And so what you begin to see in this Mark chapter 11 is that all these random details are not just part of a story. They are meant to communicate something. And they're showing us that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. That none of this, what is going to happen to him is not a surprise to him at all. In fact, not just the Mount of Olives, but also uh, the Messiah riding a colt was also something that was prophesied about. And so by Jesus doing these things, he's trying to tell them that the Messiah is here. So for example, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it will be on the screen. Uh, these are one of the times where we see that the colt, it was supposed to be associated with the Messiah. So in the book, the Old Testament book of Zechariah, it's a series of visions that the prophet Zechariah receives about the Lord and the coming day of judgment and the Messiah when he's going to come. And then it says this in verse 9 of chapter 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
That this Messiah is going to ask for this thing. So by Jesus asking for a cult, he's trying to leak something very particular to them. Now, also, I think it's worth understanding the cultural significance of what is going on. Uh, it was very common for a king or a ruler or some high-ranking government official, when they entered into a town, to ask for one of their servants to go get them something to ride, a horse, uh, any, 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 uh, a steed, anything uh, that, that, that would give them transportation while they were in a new area. That was a very normal thing for kings and rulers in ancient times. And also, they would typically ask for a, a horse that was unbroken because it was not appropriate for someone else to ride something that a king has already ridden. And so it should never have been ride, rid before, and it won't be ridden by anyone other than the king since, unless you were given a high honor. So if you're, for, for example, familiar with the book of Esther in the Old Testament, where Mordecai gets to ride one of the king's horses at the end of the book, it was an extremely high honor. So no one else was typically allowed to ride it. And so by Jesus asking for this, again, it's another sign that the king is here. But it's also significant because what we see here, again, is that Jesus is not entering Jerusalem as some sort of unknown victim of what is happening or what it looks like he is doing, right? He knows what it meant because the people in this time, they would have understood this as an extremely political event. Whether or not that's what Jesus meant to see, people have these expectations that when the Messiah comes, he is going to redeem Israel. And of course, uh, how else are you going to redeem and free a country or a nation but by force? And so you have this guy for the last three years talking about how he is inaugurating and initiating the kingdom of God. Now, doing things that kings are supposed to do, coming into the capital city of Jerusalem, there is no doubt in his mind how this is going to be seen and perceived. But what is so fascinating about Jesus is that while he does things for here, for example, like a king is going to do because he is a king, everything he does also looks extremely different. That he's not, as we'll see in just a second, he's not just asking for an Uber to get him around town. He's giving specific instructions to his disciples, and he's telling them, here's how it's going to know, go, so that they would know he is in control. And so what Mark wants us to see leading up to this Passion Week, where it seems that all things is lost, is that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control of all of these things that are about to happen. Because again, in a few days, Jesus is going to be brutally executed and murdered. But this is not a surprise for him. Again, in the Gospel of Mark alone, three times leading up to his arrival into Jerusalem, he has told his disciples what is going to happen to him, that he is going to die. And three days later, be risen up. Of course, they don't really understand how that can happen. So they talk about how they're going to defend him and how they're not going to let these things happen. But Mark wants to say he knows what's going to happen and he is in control. And hear me, this is good news for us because you might be dealing with some very unsettling things. The things in the world can be happening that seems very chaotic, very evil. We hear about what happened in Buffalo, New York yesterday with the shooting in the grocery store. And you cannot help but feel out of control and sad and anxious. And what we need to know is that not only is Jesus good, but he is also in control. Because here's the thing, who cares how good Jesus is if he doesn't have any power? Who cares how good of a moral teacher or an example he set for us if he has no power to do any of the things that he said he would do? Who cares? 
I love what Jackie Hill Perry in her book, Holier Than Now, says. It'll be on the screen. She puts it uh, this way. If Jesus is good, but not God, then the command to follow him is optional. Who cares about following Jesus? Who cares about honoring him? Who cares about doing what he says if he has no power to do for us what he promises to do for us? So not only, however, do we see that Jesus is in control, what you also see happening here is that Jesus is the king who comes down to where we are. He is a king, but he does things differently. So let me explain what I mean by this. Again, customarily, uh, a king would come in on a big powerful horse or a big powerful steed when, he was in, when he's traveling to a new city to show his dominance, to show that he is in control, to show that he is the one who has power and he would have a procession and he'd have a lot of people in front of him and behind him to show everybody who is here. And yet what we see Jesus do is he does things like a king because he is a king but he doesn't do them the way that you would expect, right? Because all throughout Mark leading up to this point, Jesus has told us how about how the kingdom of God is different. That he says, we don't lord our power over the Gentiles. Or another way, we don't act like people who do not know God. That we submit ourselves and we humble ourselves and we love others and we serve others even if we do not have to. Because that is who God is. And so uh, Jesus arrives on another horse which is expected, but how he arrives on it or what he is riding, honestly, in that time would look ridiculous. To see a grown man, this guy who people have talked about as a king, riding on something a toddler would ride on, a donkey, and a young donkey at that. In fact, I actually found a picture. This is a little bit of what it would have looked like. Jesus would have ridden something like this. Now, some of you are like, eh. Some of you are like Parks and Rec fans. Anybody? Okay, start singing the little Sebastian song, We Miss You, R.I.P., right? Imagine Jesus doing that. Like, that would look weird in our time. Or maybe, maybe to make this a little bit more practical, imagine like George Washington for whatever, crossing whatever they were in the, in the Boston area. I don't know. I'm gonna, I would say the wrong river, so I'm not even going to say it, right? To fight the British Empire, riding something like this. Like, imagine, you don't have to. We found a picture. Here's what it looked like. Here, like imagine this. Like, that would be weird. George Washington coming to fight on a donkey. Like, yeah, he's supposed to come on something, but that would look just strange. And so Jesus does kingly things, but he doesn't do them the way we would expect. He comes down to where we are. That's what he does. So Jesus here, in other words, he kind of combines high majesty with great humility. It makes me think of this. I was watching a couple weeks ago this video of the crocodiles in East Africa on the Mara River. So once a year, wildebeest, these massive animals up to 600 pounds, have to cross the Mara River to go graze on other grasslands and other things like this. And so once a year, I think it's in the fall, all the crocodiles line up, and it is like their yearly visit to Golden Corral. I mean, they are ready. And so you see this video of like hundreds and hundreds of wildebeest, and they're like all lining up on the river, and then they, some of them start going, and if there's a crocodile, like they'll stop, and they'll, like, they'll try to go to another part of the river, and this is crazy cat, cat and mouse game. And then you see the crocodiles get some of them. And they've got these massively strong jaws that can crush skulls, or they'll flip the wildebeest upside down and drown them until their bodies are lifeless, and then they will eat them. Right? You have these powerful animals can destroy their victims, and yet these very same strong jaws can pick up when it's time to lay eggs, can pick up their eggs and move them, and be tender enough to move them without crushing them. 
power and control. It's like in Isaiah chapter 42, talking about the Messiah. It says, it says, a bruised reed, the Messiah will not break. That he is care, caring for us. That he is compassionate for us. That the power, the king of all things, also comes down to where we are. That he, Jesus, can bring down kingdoms, but he will not crush us. That Jesus uses all of this strength and power that he has as God who has come, but he came not to be served, but to serve and to grant us redemption. And so he is here setting up all of these things for his entrance that's not going to look like how you would think. I love how Tim Keller in his book on the Gospel of Mark, it's a few sentences long, but I just, I think he, he powerfully shows, a, paints a picture of what Jesus looks like. Here's what he says, it's on the screen. He says, Jesus combines high majesty with the greatest humility. He joins the strongest commitment to justice with, with astonishing, astonishing mercy and grace. And he reveals a transcendent self-sufficiency and yet entire trust and reliance upon his heavenly father. We are surprised to see tenderness without any weakness, boldness without harshness, humility without any uncertainty. Indeed, accompanied by a towering confidence, right? He is going to be killed, and yet he is not afraid of what's going to happen. He says, readers can discover for themselves his unbending convictions, but complete approachability. His insistence on truth, but always bathed in love. His power without insensitivity, integrity without rigidity, passion without prejudice, this is who Jesus is. In fact, I've heard it said this way, and I think it sums it up, what we're reading here very powerfully, that Jesus isn't too great to notice you. He's too great not to notice you. He's not too busy. He's not got too much going on. He isn't uh, too popular or too powerful or too influential to care about you. In fact, he's so, he is so great. He is so powerful. He is so loving that that is why he looks down at us with compassion and love. He's not too great to notice you. He is too great not to notice you. And yet at the same time, he is still powerful. Right, so in Zechariah, when it talks about this Messiah who's going to come on the, on the foal of a donkey in great humility, also has the power to stamp out evil and bring justice to the world. It then says this in verse 10 and 11 of Zechariah. It says this, uh, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying that the Messiah will, will make God's enemies run and flee. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, all over the world, all over creation, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. As for you, which is the people of God, because of your covenant, because of the blood of your covenant, I will release your prisoners from the waterless cisterns. In other words, because God promised to redeem a people, he is going to come in majesty and power and humility to make it possible for you and us to experience the forgiveness of God. And he, when he returns a second time in his glory, he will make all things right. And you 